0: We will start the Dhamma talk with the Namo Tassa. <coughs> Namo Tassa
1: Bhagavata
0: Arahata Sama Sambudassa Namo Tassa Bhagavata Arahata Sama Sambudassa Namo Tasa Bhagavata Arahata Sama Sambudasa <coughs> So by this time, you may know what I'm going to talk about tonight. <laughs> the Bojanga, the enlightenment factor, and Today, it's the Piti Sambhojangha, the enlightenment factor of rapture. In my last talk, I spoke about Virya, Virya the enlightenment factor of effort, or energy, diligence, or perseverance, and we have also looked at the proximate causes for Virya Energy and effort to arise, and these uh, causes that are mentioned in the commentaries. And when it's said that there needs to be virya or effort, of course, this has to be understood in the way that it needs to be right effort. <coughs> so, not too much, but also not too little effort, not too tight. And not being too lax, and so in the course of the practice, this can vary. There are times when you are too lax, so then we need to arouse some more effort. At other times, we might overdo it, too much effort, and so then to have right effort, there needs to be a reduction. relaxation in the practice. So it needs to be constantly balanced, so that it becomes a balanced balanced effort. So, this enlightenment factor of rapture, together with the enlightenment factors of investigation, and the enlightenment factor of energy, these three enlightenment factors um, are said to be the arousing uh, factors and then the following ones, the enlightenment factors of tranquility, concentration and equanimity are said uh, to be the calming factors. So also here among these enlightenment factors we have some that are arousing Arousing energy, uh, effort, or interest, or curiosity, and so then, at times when the mind is in a energyless state or dull or inert, then it's appropriate to incline the mind to arouse these arousing uh, factors. Whereas at the time when the mind is uh too overexerting, filled with too much energy, and then at such a time it's appropriate to rather incline the mind to arouse those factors which are said to be the calming factors. But now to the enlightenment factor of rapture, Piti Sambojanga. Other words, To translate this party word, pity, are interest, pleasurable interest, then zest, joy, or also satisfaction. And this mental state of interest, joy, delight, zest, is a very important uh, mental state have in our practice, but also it arises in our ordinary day-to-day life. And Sayedol O Indaka, he has compared uh, rapture uh, like the joy and delight of children when they get some sweets or some money, well at least in Burma children get still delighted and joyful when they get some sweets or money I don't know here in Australia <laughs> if just a few sweets are enough <laughs> to make kids delight delighted or as the Uindaka has compared this joy or delight is like when people get what they want or when things happen according to their wishes because then people usually feel happy delighted and full of joy but this kind of joy or rapture is not rapture as a factor of enlightenment it's only a state similar uh, to it because this kind of joy or rapture is accompanied by attachment or greed, desire, wanting, and so actually then it's an unwholesome mental state, an unwholesome form of rapture or joy. The characteristic of pity or rapture is said to be endearing. So it's a state that is likable and that can be quite difficult not to be liked or uh, difficult uh, not to enjoy it. So it's difficult mm, not to go there or one can't help to be pleased or uh, delighted if it's difficult to resist somebody's uh, endearing manners uh, being tempted by intensified in German we have the saying to like in English would be to rap somebody around one's thumb so this is kind of the nature of pity of rapture difficult to resist this um, temptation or uh, likableness. and so this kind of rapture, joy, delight can arise when one performs uh, wholesome deeds a meritorious deed. By performing any wholesome meritorious deed, a person can feel happy, delighted, being full of joy. And this can be like uh, engaging in practicing generosity, practicing dana, or uh, leading a faultless, blameless life speaking uh, to the precepts and reflecting on one's uh, pure morality can lead to joy and happiness. Or other forms of wholesome, meritorious deeds are like paying respect to nuns, monks, or to a Buddha statue, or to offer a meal in a monastery, in a meditation center and so on. And so the kind of joy and delight that arises when engaging in wholesome actions, this is a wholesome form of joy or rapture. But still it's wholesome, but it is not yet a rapture as an enlightenment factor only the delight, joy and rapture that arises when one sees the arising and passing away of phenomena this is called the true uh, enlightenment factor of rapture and so this usually happens in the course of meditation practice when practicing Vipassana meditation and as we have seen this clear uh, seeing of phenomena in the body and mind as constantly arising and passing away one after the other, this understanding, this insight arises in the fourth stage of insight knowledge. So it is then at that time that the enlightenment factor of rapture uh, arises. then the function of rapture is uh, that of pervading so the function of rapture is to pervade the whole mind and body with rapture and when the mind and the body are pervaded with rapture it's actually uh, a refreshing of one's uh, mind and body And a very common manifestation of rapture are goosebumps or chills uh, going through one's body. There are five kinds of raptures that are differentiated. There is a form of rapture which is called Minor rapture the second one is momentary rapture the third one is showering rapture the fourth one is uplifting rapture and the fifth one is pervading rapture and so the first kind the minor rapture as the word implies this is not very strong and it also doesn't last very long As a matter of fact, this kind of minor rapture just arises uh, for a brief moment. It's like a lightning in the sky that arises and a short moment after uh, is gone. And so also with this kind of rapture, it's just a moment of rapturous feeling that comes and then goes. Then the second kind of rapture is momentary rapture. And also this kind of rapture is quite short, quite momentary, but usually it happens repeatedly. So three, four, five moments of rapture arising and passing away. So a sequence of rapturous moments. And usually This happens in certain parts of the body, like it can happen on one's arm, or on one's head, or on the back, or on one's leg. Then the third kind of rapture is showering rapture, sometimes also translated as flood of rapture. (coughs) And this kind of rapture starts either in the lower part of the body, and then from there works up its way through the upper part of the body, or it may start in the upper part of the body and then uh, flow to the lower parts of the body, so like a flood that uh, goes through the body. And so then with that, the usually the whole body has been pervaded. Uh, with this kind of rapture and this form of rapture lasts a little bit longer it's not as short or momentary as the two uh, previous forms of rapture and with this kind of rapture then the body uh, feels very light and there is a feeling of Refreshment, like the body feels really uh, refreshed, and if that, also the mind becomes uh, light and happy, refreshed. The next kind is uplifting rapture, and when this kind of rapture arises, then either parts of the body or even the whole body may be uplifted. And so when this form of rupture arises, meditators experience jerking movements of let's say the arms or the legs or the upper body uh, uh, has a jerking movement. It can also manifest as a trembling in the hands or the feet or sometimes can manifest as a shaking or vibrating of the whole body. Another form uh, of this uh, rapture is the hands resting in the lap may, may all of a sudden be jolted out of one's lap, and sometimes it leads to a feeling as if the whole body is uplifted and the meditator feels like uh, flying in the air or at least being suspended in the air and so when this uplifting rapture arises, it's like waves rolling towards the shore and then breaking on the shore and so in the same way these rapturous healing uh, in the body come and go and when it's really strong then this uplifting rapture actually lifts the body off the ground at one time Saito Uendaka uh, was meditating in saido Ujanaka's center in Yangon And another Burmese monk was also meditating. And one day, as Sido Oindakam was sitting in the meditation hall uh, meditating, he heard funny noises, like something like boom, boom, boom. And it was very strange and funny, and so um, he got curious what that was. It came. In front of him. And so he opened his eyes, and indeed, this Burmese monk sitting in front of him uh, was lifted off the ground. And so falling back on the, on the ground. Boom! 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 So, very obviously, this monk must have been experiencing uplifting rapture. <laughs> The last form of rapture is called pervading rapture. And so, as the word implies, this form of rapture pervades the whole body and mind. And so with that, meditators usually feel incredibly good. It's an incredible pleasurable and uh, pleasant experience. And so when this happens, meditators they don't want to get up from sitting meditation. <laughs> and even if it's time for a meal, lunch time, uh, there is no wish, no desire uh, to get up and have some coarse food. <laughs> but this form of rapture is so delightful, so exquisite. Uh, they don't want. Uh, have it, uh, to get it stopped or to finish and this kind of rapture is compared to a drop of oil that sinks into a cotton ball and if you have observed this like oil being dropped on a cotton ball then immediately it pervades uh, the whole cotton ball and so in the same way the whole body from head to toe is pervaded by this rapturous uh, feeling and meditators feel incredibly good incredibly light incredibly um, awake and fresh and to the manifestation of rapture rapture, pity, manifests as elation, and as meditators can experience when rapture arises in the practice, then both mind and body feel incredibly light, and sometimes there is even a feeling of the whole body and the mind kind of being uplifted, elated, and so this elation makes a withered mind fresh and alert and it also can make a heavy dull body light and agile and when one is practicing uh, sitting meditation the body can feel so light that it seems that the body is not touching the cushion or the ground at all. Or when doing walking meditation it feels like the touching are not touching the feet are not touching the ground at all. The Buddha compared rapture to the deathless. <coughs> and that the deathless is just another designation for Nibbana. So the Buddha comparing rapture to Nibbana, at least for those who know. And there is this verse in the Dhammapada where it says, whenever he observes the rise and fall of the aggregates he experiences joy and happiness to those who know that is the deathless. So whoever, whenever he observes the rise and fall of the aggregates, he experiences joy and happiness. So this refers to the fact that uh, the factor, the enlightenment factor of rapture arises when one clearly sees the rise and fall, or the arising and disappearance of phenomena and so, yeah joy, rapture, arises and so the Buddha says to those who know to those meditators that uh, is deathless but of course that itself, observing the rise and fall, is not truly the deathless, or the unconditioned Nibbana but the meaning is that from that state, this leads to the deathless. Starting to see the arising and passing away of phenomena is when insights, the stages of insight start to unfold. And that naturally, if one continues with the practice, leads to the experience of the deathless to the experience of nirvana and so especially in the fourth stage of inside knowledge seeing the arising and passing away of mental and bodily objects very clearly then as a result of that rapture, joy, delight arises and It's also due to this uh, factor of rapture that the painful sensations that the meditator experienced uh, so far, uh, they start to diminish and they start to disappear. And so in that stage, meditators usually don't experience much pain or unpleasant sensations. And it's also in that stage that meditators who have been suffering from some diseases, chronic pains or diseases that with these uh, strong forms and experiences of rapture they recover from the chronic diseases or uh, pains and sicknesses and so it's with that that uh, the Bojangas are said to be medicine. Then the proximate cause of rapture, as in the other uh, cases, the Buddha said that frequently giving careful attention is the proximate cause for rapture, pity, uh, to arise. And also here in the commentaries, and some more proximate causes for rapture to arise are mentioned. Altogether, 11 causes. I'll mention them briefly and then go through them one by one. Mm. The first one is the recollection of the attributes of the Buddha. The second one, the recollection of the attributes of the Dhamma. The third one, the recollection of the attributes of the Sangha the fourth one is to reflect on one's own pure morality the fifth one the recollection of one's generosity the sixth one the recollection of the virtues of the devas the seventh one the reflection on the peace of Nibbana the eighth one is to avoid coarse, rough and angry persons. The next one is to associate with refined, loving and gentle persons. Tense causes to reflect on inspirational suttas or texts. And the last one to incline the mind arouse the enlightenment factor of rapture. So now to this first proximate cause as mentioned in the commentary. This is the recollection of the attributes of the Buddha, which is called Buddha Nusati. And so this refers to the repeated recollection of the attributes of the Buddha. And in my talks on faith and refuge, I explained these nine attributes of the Buddha and what they imply, what they actually mean. So I don't want to go into this uh, here. But there is another way to recollect the attributes of the Buddha, and this is uh, threefold first to reflect on the Buddha's virtuous conduct then the second is to reflect on the virtues of the Buddha's body and the third one is to reflect on the virtues of the Buddha's mind and so the Buddha's virtuous conduct again can be divided into three categories like there is the conduct for the welfare of the world, the conduct for the welfare of all living beings in the world. Then the second one is the virtuous conduct for the welfare of one's relatives, of one's family and friends. And the third one is the conduct, the virtuous conduct to realize the Four Noble Truths. So the Buddha, before he became the Buddha, when he was a bodhisattva, he developed all these three kinds of virtuous conduct in each uh, of his uh, existences. So we you know that the Buddha gave away his possessions, he gave away parts of his body, limbs, organs, of his body and he even gave away his life and so sometimes he did so for the welfare of living beings in the world (coughs) sometimes this conduct was for the welfare of his family or relatives (coughs) or friends and sometimes these um, actions were done as a virtuous conduct in order to realize the four noble truths for example in the Sasa Pandita Jataka the birth stories of the Buddha we are told that he gave away his life uh, when he was a rabbit or in another uh, Jataka we are told as King Sivi he gave away his eyes when an old Brahmin came and requested uh, his eyes. And in his life as King Visantara, he gave away many things every day. He was practicing generosity on a large scale. But still, he was not satisfied with his practice of generosity and thought that Uh, he needed to give more for even more precious things and so then king Vesantara gave away the white royal elephant and at that time a kingdom that possessed a white royal elephant was uh, said uh, to be very uh, prosperous neighboring kings didn't dare to attack such a kingdom, and people were flourishing, they were doing well in their lives, in their business. And so when King Vesantara gave away this white royal elephant, the people in his country were not happy with the king any longer, so they got upset and angry at him. And so finally they chased him away. And so the king, with his wife, the queen, his son and his daughter, left the palace on a horse cart, going to a faraway region in the mountains. And as they were traveling on the horse cart, somebody came and asked for the horse cart with the horse. And King Vesantara, being still undeterred from uh, his wish to practice generosity, he gave away the horse cart and the horse, and that meant that they had to uh, continue their journey on foot. And sometime later, somebody came and asked for the queen, and again, King Lisandra gave her away without hesitation. After that, somebody came and asked for his two children, for his son and his daughter, and again. He didn't uh, hesitate one moment <coughs> and gave them away. So this may seem a bit cruel and uh, not uh, being responsible for one's wife and children uh, might be even considered to be cruel. but the Bodhisattva had a much wider vision and he knew that these acts of generosity even if they included his wife, his children were uh, beneficial and helpful in the long run. Then the reflection on the virtues of the Buddha's body. In his last existence as the prince Siddhartha, he was uh, very handsome. He was endowed with the thirty-two major marks and the eighty minor marks of a great man, and was endowed with all the marks of a noble person. And again talking about the Buddha's attributes, I mentioned, what these 32 major marks are. So even before becoming the Buddha, still being a bodhisattva, his um, body was extremely handsome, extremely gracious, and it became even more so when he had attained full enlightenment when he had become the Buddha because then all the defilements had been completely destroyed and so his mind was really pure and so also the body became extremely gracious and so at that time when the Buddha was living, person around and people could see him, could uh, pay respect to him. So people who uh, were able to meet the Buddha to see him, they were very pleased with this beautiful appearance of this man, and so paying respect to the Buddha then caused great joy and delight to arouse in this people's mind at the time when Buddhism flourished in Sri Lanka there lived an elder a monk by the name of Pusadeva and this venerable Pusadeva he worshipped uh, a Buddha statue that was created by Mara and so whenever he paid respect to that uh, Buddha statue, uh, great joy, delight and rapture arose in his mind. And so then observing his rapture, observing the mm-hmm. phenomena arising in his mind and body, uh, didn't take long and uh, he became an Arahant. Fully liberated and this is how this statue created by Mara uh, came to be created. This Venerable Pusadeva, he lived in a monastery near to the big pagoda which is a uh, big pagoda in Anahudapura. and so every morning before he would go on alms round he first would go to the pagoda and sweep the grounds around the pagoda, clean the platform. And after having done that, he would sit down and practice some Buddha Nusati, the recollection of the Buddha's attributes. And after that then he would set out for his arms round. And so one morning, as he had cleaned the platform, the grounds around the uh, pagoda, he just sat down and wanted to start practicing Buddha Nosati. Then, an old cow stepped onto the platform of the pagoda and was wandering around there and leaving uh, her smelly droppings of shit and urine. And so, Venupusa Pusadeva had uh, to clean again the platform around the pagoda and because of that then there was no more time left to sit down and practice Buddha Nosvatthi because it was time to go on alms round. then the next day when he went there again just after having cleaned and swept around the pagoda as he was sitting down a big monkey came and wandered around the platform and also soiled it with uh, droppings and urine and so again Venabhupusa Deva had to start cleaning again and then again that day there was no time to do Buddha Nusati, as it was time to go on arms round then on the third day same thing happened as he had finished cleaning just about to sit down an extremely ugly-looking elderly man stepped onto the platform of the pagoda. And Venerable Pursadeva had lived in that monastery, in that area for a long time, and so he knew all the people living in that area. But he had never seen this elderly, ugly man. And so he thought that this must be Mara in disguise and so he asks him straight into the face are you Mara (laughs) and Mara not being able to lie admitted yes I am Mara and when said oh I am very happy to meet you Mara he was not afraid of Mara he was also not uh, upset about the encounter with Mara actually he was really pleased uh, to see Mara and so Venable Pustadeva said to him you know Mara in the scriptures I have read about you and you have also met the Buddha several times I know you are quite powerful so therefore I ask you Mara can you create an image of the Buddha for me, please? And Mara said, yes, I will try my best, but probably it's not a, not going to be exactly like the Buddha. And so then when Mara had finished to create this image of the Buddha, Venerable Pusadeva seeing this statue was filled with delight and joy and so he paid respect to this Buddha statue created by Mara and so he reflected on the attributes of the Buddha and these marvelous Buddha statue created by Mara knowing that Mara still being under the influence of defilements um, did not have a uh, pure liberated mind but still Mara was able to create this quite marvelous, extraordinary uh, statue of the Buddha and so reflecting like this and being filled with joy and delight of sitting in front of this Buddha statue I uh his mind was obviously filled with rapture and so then uh, he started to note and observe this rapture and other phenomena arising in his body and mind and this led him to the attainment of arahanship right then and there then the reflection on the virtue of the Buddha's mind. So, the Buddha's mind, like our mind, uh, consists of the consciousness, jitta, and the mental factors accompanying the consciousness, the jitta seekers. The Buddha's mind was completely freed from all the defilements, from all the unwholesome unwholesome, detrimental mental factors and so the Buddha's mind is really clear and pure. And that purity of mind uh, also made him omniscient, being able to know and see everything that exists anywhere. And we also know that the Buddha was an extremely kind and loving and compassionate person. So reflecting on the Buddha's mind means to reflect on his omniscience and also on his uh, great kindness and compassion. Now we'll go to the second proximate cause as mentioned in the commentary. Well actually it's the second and the third, because these are the points of recollecting the attributes of the Dhamma and the Sangha. And also these attributes of the Dhamma and the Sangha I have explained in great detail in my talks on faith and refugees. So I won't go into this here uh, anymore. The next two causes are the recollections on one's own uh, moral purity and one's generosity. So, this reflection takes one's goodness as the object. So, if you are able to live by the ethical standards that the Buddha described in the five precepts, then our actions of body and speech are faultless, blameless. We don't hurt or harm others and ourselves. And, you know, in regard, for example, the first precept, uh, we should not only abstain from killing living beings, but we also should be eager to protect other living beings' lives. So then our actions, body and speech, uh, become really uh, virtuous, contributing to the welfare and happiness of others and ourselves as well. For example, some years ago in Burma, I had to go out uh, to get some things. So with Mimi, my Burma's friend, we went to the market and got all the necessary things. (coughs) And as it was already late afternoon, she wanted to offer me something to drink. So we went to uh, this place uh, where they sold some cold drinks and always to be careful not uh, drinking something that uh, could make a bad stomach so I had just one of these mm, fizzy drinks, bottled drinks something like Sprite in Burma it's called Quench Burma is imitation of Sprite and so d- drinking it out of the bottle with a straw and As I was three quarters through it, like one quarter uh, was left, then a fly made its way into the bottle, and it buzzed around in the bottle, uh, trying to escape, but uh, not being able to do it, and then it even dropped into the remaining quench, into the water, and so uh, having Dropped into that, it was kind of stuck there in on the surface uh, of the uh, liquid, and very obviously, the fly was struggling for its life, knowing that probably soon it's going to die, gonna die or drown. So, seeing this poor fly in there, I, uh, with the straw, I tried kind of to get it. Out of the water uh, but it dropped back and I tried to get it out again and then at one stage I had it sitting on the straw and then so very carefully I tried to pull out the straw I needed a few attempts but finally I got it out and the fly very happily uh, cleaning its legs and wings took off and as the fly went off, then Mimi looked very anxious over to me and said, don't drink the rest of it. (laughs) And she thought I had taken out the fly so that that I could drink the rest (laughs) of the quench, but of course no way (laughs) that I was going to drink it, it was only uh, to save uh, the fly. Likewise, when we reflect on our generosity, like if we can recollect an instant, a moment where we practice generosity, then by just reflecting on that generous deed, this can bring much joy, delight and rapture into our mind and even body. For example, one instance that almost always and instantly arouses a lot of joy and rapture to arise in myself is uh, these uh, moments when I supported a very remote nunnery in the Indian Himalayas in Ladakh. There is a small nunnery there, and they are very remote, there is no road leading to this village. One has to walk five days over the mountains, the passes, crossing two passes of 5,000 meters. So it's a far off place, and many years ago, by chance, I came across this village, this place, and. Uh, So ever since then, I have gone back and uh, especially to support the nuns there. When I first got there, there was no nunnery, but the geji, the abbot, had this idea of establishing a monastery for the nuns, for women, and so uh, to support this nunnery. And yeah, there is almost no other way than going there yourself and bring the necessary uh, financial support and so the fact that I'm fit enough um, to walk there and uh, to support them and then seeing how they have been doing quite well since the nunnery started uh, this always brings instant joy and delight to my mind so it's almost uh, one for sure if I feel the very and uh, grumpy if I remember that it immediately changes the state of my mind then the sixth uh, point is the recollection of the virtues of the devas, as I've mentioned before, devas are beings living in the heavenly realms, and one is reborn in the deva realm on account of one's pure morality, or in the present, or on account of one's generosity, and the devas are beings which are mm, very beautiful, they enjoy a lot of sense pleasures, they experience very little pain or uh, dissatisfaction and also it is said that devas they extend their protection to human beings and especially to human beings who are live a virtuous life who are generous or who engage in the purification of the heart and mind and so just reflecting on the virtues of these heavenly beings Mm -hmm. the devas, can also uh, make joy, rapture and delight arise And the next point is the reflection on the peace of nirvana. Nirvana has the characteristic of peace. With the absence of the burning fires of greed, hatred and delusion, the mind becomes very calm, still, serene or peaceful. and. This calmness, stillness or peacefulness can be compared to a very still and calm uh, mountain lake like the one that I came across many many years ago uh, in Kashmir the Indian Himalayas so there was this not too big lake high up on about in the half 4,000 four thousand meters and this lake, the waters were completely still and also the water was extremely clear and transparent and so standing at the edge of this lake looking into the water one could see all the pebbles and stones at the ground of the lake, very clear very uh, distinct and it was like there was no water there at all, no ripples, no uh, kind of movement to be discerned. So, this peacefulness or stillness, calmness, is a characteristic of nibbana, and so uh, to reflect on this. Can also arouse joy and rapture and happiness. Then the next two points are again the kinds of persons we should avoid or associate with, like to avoid those persons who are rough, harsh and angry and to associate with persons who are kind, gentle, and loving. So, from our experience, we know that even a short encounter with an angry person makes us feel different from an encounter with a calm, peaceful person. Unless we are not super mindful, we definitely uh, will feel different after these two short encounters. Then the tenth point is the reflection on inspiring suttas. So this kind of reflection uh, includes either reflecting about certain suttas or texts or reading them or chanting them. And this can make the mind uh, very uh, elated, joyful and uh, fresh and cheerful. And this is especially helpful at the time in the practice when the mind is dull or bored or when the mind feels really weary, or at a time when there is a lot of worries. And so, if one has uh, some knowledge of some suttas, discourses of the Buddhas, then one could uh, reflect on, for example, the Satipatthana Sutta, the discourse on the foundations of mindfulness. Or one could reflect on the first discourse that the Buddha gave, the dhamma Sutta, Sutta, turning the wheel of the Dhamma. It can also be reflecting on the Metta-sutta, or if one remembers some verses from the Dhammapada, or reading, taking Mm. a book that contains the Dhammapada, reading some verses, or what I also find inspiring are the Terigatas and the Teragatas, the verses of the nuns and the monks, or the Paritas, the protective suttas. Otherwise, one might reflect on or read passages uh, of books that one has read about Buddhism or the practice of meditation. And this can also be texts, books by contemporary uh, authors. Western um, authors like Pico Body, Joseph Goldstein, Sharon Salzberg, only to mention a few of uh, the many authors. When you are in a secluded place, not disturbing other meditators, then uh If you know some passages, some texts, you could recite this text aloud or um, chant the Metta Sutta in English or uh, in Pali, chant it aloud. I find chanting is like applying a moisturizing and soothing balm when the mind feels dry and weary. is simply unwieldy and the last point is to incline the mind to arouse the enlightenment factor of rapture so this simply mi- <coughs> means to incline the mind in that direction <coughs> or to make room uh, for this enlightenment sector of rapture to arise as we have seen the party verb uh, for rapture also means interest or zest and so that's really this interest in the practice the interest in the objects that we are observing in the course of our meditation practice And so it also needs this kind of beginner mind. Always be interested, not thinking, oh, I've seen that already hundreds of times, I know. No, there's still more uh, to see, to detect. And so with this interest, this zest, uh, with that of course then uh, rapture. Uh, arises and pity rapture can even arise when observing an unpleasant or painful object Um, even observing strong pain can uh, make pity rapture arise so to have pity it doesn't mean that one needs to have only blissful and enjoyable experiences or pleasant sensations. Pity is not so much dependent on the feeling tone of the object or the experience but it's deeper than that. It's this basic interest in what is going on. And so when pity gains momentum, then the practice can become really uh, delightful. It can be a nice thing to do. In my initial years practicing in the Jamyayeta Meditation Center in Yangon, I uh, was experiencing a lot of physical pain. So many. Uh, of my sittings were really painful and unpleasant um, experiences. But I remember a time the practice somehow had taken off and there was this momentum in the practice. I would wake up in the morning before the bell was ringing at 3.30 and my mind would go, what will I experience today? and knowing that it was a lot of pain (laughs) that I was going to experience. But there was this interest in the practice, in the object. How will it be today? What will I discover today? So, when the practice is sustained by a sense of interest and zest, then uh, our practice Will flourish not only in an intensive meditation retreat but also in our day to day lives. So, with that, this, let's conclude this talk. May all of you be able to develop and experience rapture and joy, and may it lead you all the way to the end of suffering. Goodbye. Goodbye.